Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Women's basketball is having a moment, and if you've been watching more than usual these days, you're not alone. In fact, you're among millions. This year, the WNBA had its most watched regular season in 21 years, and the league also set new highs across digital platforms, social media engagement, and sports betting. And we love to see these highly skilled, incredible, powerful women get the recognition they deserve on and off the court. One of the women we have to thank is the first ever commissioner of the WNBA, Kathy Engelbert. Since being appointed commissioner in 2019, she has not only executed a historic player-first collective bargaining agreement that addresses everything from compensation to health and wellness, but she's also built and socialized a new economic framework to drive league revenue and owner success and led the NBA through the pandemic. I just want to add in the interest of full disclosure, I am an investor in the WNBA in the historic capital raise that Kathy shepherded early on in her tenure. Before coming on as commissioner, she spent 33 years at Deloitte, rising through the ranks to eventually become the first female CEO of Deloitte and the first woman to lead a big firm. Kathy, your resume truly speaks for itself, a list of incredible firsts. So I want to thank you so much for being with us here today. Karen, so great to be here and always appreciate your support. So let's start with your career up until this point. So you're at Deloitte. You're there for 33 years. You rise to the position of CEO. And what is it like being the first female CEO? Or do you just think of yourself as a CEO? And then actually, what does the CEO of a firm with 350,000 some odd employees actually do? Yeah, it's a great question, Karen. When I first became the CEO of Deloitte, I was kind of a line partner serving big pharmaceutical clients. And I didn't know what a big deal it was going to be to become the first female CEO. And what I learned is the art of handwritten letters is not dead. I got a ton of handwritten letters from people saying how inspired they were and There were quotes about gender quake on Wall Street, all this kind of stuff. And really for me, and it's always good to have kids because they humble you. My son like wrote me a letter and he said, now you're just still mom to me, even though you're CEO now. But 
And that's why I tell a lot of people, especially young people, don't aspire to a boxer title, aspire to lead, because it was a big job. I had not been one of these that had been preparing my whole career for it. But I did. Being at Deloitte offered me a range of different opportunities over multiple careers within one firm. And I had been in audit. I'd been in our capital markets group. I'd been in our consulting group. I was in financial institutions, then I went to pharmaceuticals, and I was a technical derivatives guru. So just having that range of experience, I think, kept it fresh and interesting and helped prepare me to become a CEO. And a CEO, what is is a CEO of a very big human capital intensive firm like Deloitte, accounting and consulting firm do? It's same as you, you run the business, you evaluate strategy, you execute employee culture. I always say a CEO is responsible for two main things culture and capital allocation. And I was the CEO during a time when we were trying to figure out what AI was, which we're still trying to figure out, right, Karen? And whether to invest in AI and cognitive or invest in cloud or invest in other emerging technologies back in 2015 and 19. So yeah, it's a broad role. And one thing that changed while I was the CEO was even just during my term as a CEO is I spent no time on employee activism when I became the CEO in 2014. And by the time I left in 2019, I spent a lot of time on employee activism. So when you're CEO, you have to be very agile and deal with a variety of different things, including keeping abreast of what your talent is following and how they want you to lead. And so a lot of listening, believe it or not, when you're a CEO of a company that size and scale. I would think, actually, a lot of listening, a lot of fires, a lot of stress, a lot of a lot of everything. So I know you're champion for employee benefits. I know you had a people-first agenda at Deloitte. When you talk about employee activism, is that what you're talking about? I assume that one encompasses the other. Yeah, I think the culture of being very people-first and hopefully have brought into the WMA to be very player-first. But as I said, the two main roles are culture and capital allocation and having a strong corporate culture is so crucial to the success of any organization. So that's what I meant by that. The employee activism was more, you know, obviously the divisiveness in our country and all the issues out there that we're dealing with and having tolerance to understand someone else's opinion. That was kind of the employee activism part of being a CEO and and that nothing, this next generation, these digital natives are all on social media. And whenever you put a memo out, it's in the social media picture of it, the content's out there, there's no secrets anymore. So just being very cognizant that employees have different opinions, different views, different political ideologies. That's what I mean by having to spend a lot more time on it. Okay, so there you are. You're at Deloitte. You're the CEO. What are you thinking is your next step? How is it that you became the commissioner of the WNBA? Yeah, it's an interesting story because when you're the CEO, you have a term and your term's over and now it's either time to retire or hang out. And I was still young enough to want to do a second act. And I'll tell you, I just wrote three things on a piece of paper and I give a lot of guidance now to other men and women who are looking at a second act after a long career somewhere. And I said, write three things down that you're looking for. I wrote down the following on a beach in Naples, Florida. I wrote down, I want to do something different, something with a broad women's leadership platform and something I have, I would have a passion for. Never thinking it would take me to sports. I thought maybe Karen, a college or university president or maybe a non-for-profit leader. And I had played college basketball and had a big passion. I know you were D1 basketball player. Yeah, D1 basketball player for Little Lehigh, but Muffet McGraw was my coach. Now Naismith Hall of Fame coach went on to great success at Notre Dame. And so I kind of said, you know, and someone, one of my friends who had used to work for Deloitte was the head of basketball operations at the NBA. And he called and he said, I have the perfect job for you commissioner of the WNBA. And I laughed at him for five months. I said, I don't know anything about running a sports league. I know business. And 
what I've learned is sports is big business, big business about relationships, and it's not that different. So I definitely check the box of something different, broad, very broad women's leadership platform, and we're 80% women of color, so proud of these players. And then the passion comes from having played on one of eight kids. We all played basketball in the backyard. So yeah, a big passion job too. So to me, from the outside, you're ideal. You have a business acumen. You have an understanding as a player. You know about hard work and what it means to be on a team. And you have a love for the game. So you put all those things together. And I think you're an outstanding choice. I think that what you've done so far is really extraordinary. And it hasn't been very long. So let's get to what I see your goals are is expanding the viewership, the presence, the celebrity, the excitement of women's basketball on every metric, and then also expanding the league. So I see those are your first two goals. And this is a bit of a layup, pun intended. How is it going so far? Yeah, I can't be more proud. I mean, this is a league that's the longest tenured women's professional sports league in the country in our 27th year, double any other women's sports league. So I take that as a very heavy responsibility that we're leading around women's sports and therefore we're investing in that capital raise we did back in February of 22. We would have done it sooner, but the pandemic hit and I kind of, we had to like save a season in a bubble in 2020. And then a half of 21, we didn't have fans in seats because there were still restrictions in most of the cities we play in. So yeah, it's been quite a couple years, but I uh, can't be more pleased. And we stuck with a basic strategy. So I always tell people this too, like when you become a new CEO or a new leader, make your strategy, again, three things, three prongs. So your people know what they're executing against, then put your KPIs in. But for us, it was to be very player first, to stakeholder success that included our owners and then our new investors and also every, all of our stakeholders and then fan engagement. I mean, if you're not going to have fans and fans aren't going to be passionate and avid and rabid about your sport and about these players, you're not going to be able to build a growth sports property. So that's the strategy we put forth. We had to transform our digital app and our digital footprint. We had to invest in the players through a new CBA, through marketing agreements. We had to get them more shown because if you build it, they will come. And this year, I think when I joined the league, maybe 60 of our 200 plus games were on national platforms this year. 205 of our 240 games are on national platforms. So just an investment in them. And it couldn't be going better, Karen. I'm so pleased. We are truly a growth property. And during even some tough times, we've continued to grow. And again, a lot of credit to the players for the quality of the product they're putting on the court game in and game out, double doubles, triple doubles, and then the marketing around them that we've been able to do and invest in. It's cost money, but it's well worth it. Well, I think that capital raise, before you were able to show, you got people to believe that it could happen. And that was really instrumental. And I know all of this is driving towards this very important, big media negotiation coming up for 2025, that you need to build this first and show them how valuable this can be. And so that's a big priority. And is that what is sort of driving you now for the next year as so crucial to get this viewership, this engagement, all of that to help translate this sport into something bigger? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the revenue model for sports at a league level, there's really two main revenue streams and it's 
corporate partnerships and media dollars. So content more broadly defined now because we have short, medium and long form content. We have live games, but all, the whole content strategy is something we're really focused on because that's driving recognition of these athletes. If you watch the NBA playoffs this year, there wasn't almost a commercial or ad spot on that didn't have a WNBA player in it. So making them visible, building them into household names, building rivalries, having compelling games, games of consequence. And that's what's going to drive the next valuation of our media rights. So again, before I came into sports, had no idea what the revenue model is. That's what the revenue model is. And we're still in our kind of like, maybe we're an adolescent now in, in the trajectory there. But I see a lot of positive momentum around women's sports broadly and certainly around the WNBA. But there's not a meeting I start with my team where I don't start with. Remember, one of the number one things we're driving at is the next round of valuation, not just of our media rights, of ad spots around those rights, as well as a patch on the uniform, a placement on the court an ad buy, whatever it is, and then the valuation of franchises, because that's what's driven a lot of value for owners, those stakeholders. That's what's driven a lot of values for players, personal endorsements. We have a lot of generational players going to come out of the NCAA system in the next couple of years in the women's basketball game who are going to kill it in the WNBA. So that's exciting. So just so much to look forward to. You mentioned expansion earlier of the number of teams. We're 12 teams, longest tenured women's professional sports league in the country, 12 teams in a country of 350 million people. So we need more teams. So that's all on the horizon. And that's why that capital raise was so important. So we could deploy that over a three to five year period to grow the league, expand the league and get the players more household names and more rivalries built. So I know that you've got a lot of work ahead of you because the amount of corporate sponsorship spent on women's sports and the amount of media money spent on women's sports is what? So less than 1% of all corporate partnership dollars that go to sports go to women's sports and less than 5% of all media coverage of sports goes to women's sports. But we're now changing that dynamic. Now, again, as a business person carrying yourself, investor, as myself, a business person and a former accountant, CPA, one of the main things I looked at, what's the denominator to get to that one in 5%? And it's enormous, enormous, because men's sports is big, big business. But we are moving the needle in the numerator and the denominator is expanding too, luckily for all sports, because live sports is one of those things that people really have a passion for. And I watch all other sports and I watch the passion of the fans, whether it's the loyalty to a team, to a player, to a city, the pride they have for that team. So that is one of my biggest priorities is to kind of think about how we move that 1%, 5%, how to move it a couple hundred basis points is Herculean, but we're actually making a lot of progress there. And we've got great media partners now that are stepping up and want to actually show our content because they realize how exciting it is, especially coming off that $10 million viewership number the NCAA women's basketball tournament had. And that was a game of consequence. And there was a rivalry building between LSU and Iowa and two players who were kind of villains with each other. So that's what we're going to try to create, which is what the NBA created with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And then obviously later on, Michael Jordan and Nike came in and made it a marketing success. So that's what we're trying to do. Not that you always follow a prior playbook, but it's helpful to have games of consequence, build rivalries and have some edginess around kind of players coming into the league and players currently in the league. Like right now, we've got a lot of amazing players in this league. And have some stars. I mean, it's always really important. I mean, they're all teams, but stars help drive engagement. And then, oh, you find out there's other players that are fantastic. So those two statistics that you cited, the 1% and the 
less than five. There's so much talk about why women basketball players make less than men basketball players by a very wide margin. And there is the answer. That's the crux of it. Yeah, if you look at, and again, the other sports, first comparing us to the men who've been around for uh, at least in basketball, 70, they'll be in their 77th year, I think. Football's 105 years old. Baseball's 110 years old. Hockey's over 100 years old. So those comparisons are tough for us, right? Because we're in our 27th year. But having said that, I think if you look at us 27 years in, look where those other sports were 40, 50 years in, different time, obviously inflation and things like that. But I mean, again, we're trying to close the gap as much as we can with the capital we raise, with deploying that. We In the last CBA, we tripled the top players' pay. And so we're proud of what we've done, but we have a lot of hard work to do. And, and this is a valuation question. So when you look at the valuation of a franchise in men's sports versus the valuation women's sports, it's based on revenue multiples. And the revenue is driven by media rights and corporate partnerships of which we're underinvested in and undervalued. So it's a kind of this vicious cycle, but we're making some progress. You're already seeing, we've had a, a team, the Seattle Storm valued last year in a capital raise at $150 million, which is amazing. And I know it's not the billions the men are getting valued at, but again, 27 years in and probably just a few years ago, we would have been valued much less at that. And then we have a second team, Chicago valued at 85 million. We're looking at just the health of the league overall and the momentum and being it viewed as a legitimate sports media and entertainment growth property. I always tell people, don't just say property, growth property, which is what this is all about. And you got to look at your revenue streams. And look, the media companies are all being disrupted, as you report often in the business world. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The streamers have come in and now they're vying for live sports rights and people are cutting the cord and digital natives. But we have the new old and like an ION network who signed on with us for Friday night appointment viewing this season. And we did really well on ION this year. So again, it's changing ever so quickly, but it's also opportunity because live sports is still something that people want to consume and they want to consume it live, right? And sports betting is big. So All of those things bode well for as we get into our next round of valuation on whether, again, it's our media rights or our franchise values. Well, I I happen to be a New York Liberty fan because I'm a New Yorker and we're getting into playoff season and a place was going nuts in the last few games, especially that last one in overtime. Yeah, they're being viewed as a super team and they've been performing as such. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out the rest of the playoffs here. So you came in with a ton of stuff to do, but very, very early on in your tenure, the pandemic hits. Tell us about that enormous shift. Yeah. So unlike the NBA, who was 75% the way through their season and then finished theirs at a bubble, we hadn't started our season yet. We're a May to October. We hadn't had a draft yet. The NCAA tournament was canceled. That's our big feeder system into our draft. But there were some generational players like Sabrina Ionescu coming in and Satu Sabali. And so incredible, right? So we hit it and I turned to my team and I go, okay, we need to do some scenario planning. And of course, they're not long experienced business people. And like, scenario what? I go, okay. And again, we knew very little about the virus back then. And we said, are we going to do it in one location, multiple location, regional locations with or without fans? How long are we going to do a season for? How are we going to keep the players healthy and away from this horrible virus. So we did scenario planning and we presented that to our players, the Players Association, because they're a union. We presented it to our owners. I felt like I was working on an IPO, Karen, for about three months before we then got a season up and running. We had a competitive season. Seattle won it. We did not have one positive COVID test the whole time we were in the bubble. 
to this moment, I'm still amazed at that because although we're in a bubble, it's never a literal bubble. Ours is a wobble, as the, the players affectionately called it, and it grew on me after a while. But it was something where we had to have a season because to be out of the sports landscape, Karen, for 22 months, which is what it would have been had we not have a season, you might be out of business. At least a few of the teams, we wouldn't have maximized the marketing money, the corporate partnership money. We have no revenue for a year. We still have expenses. We we're pretty sure we're still going to have to pay the players. So we didn't have much choice. And one thing I always say to people, I was told probably about six weeks into all this scenario planning, like, Kathy, there's a 2% chance this is going to work and none of us are going to have jobs next year. And that was from my own senior leader. And I said, wow, what do you do in the face of someone telling you you have a 98% chance of failure? And my competitive spirit, having played lacrosse and basketball in college, kicked in. And I said, oh, we're going to prove everybody wrong. And I said, trust me, we're going to get this done. I knew we had great medical people advising us, but I said, we're going to get this done. These are athletes at the top of their profession. And, and we got it done. 92 days later, we all emerged from the bubble with a champion, a competitive season, kept the players safe and the coaches. And it was hard, but you know what? It set the stage for the success we're having today. So I'm glad we did it. Very glad. When you're in the middle of a crisis, Karen, because you faced a lot of crisis, the financial crisis, I, I was around with the SNL crisis. The decisions you make in the middle of the crisis are those that you're going to be talking about for 10 years. And I assure you, I'm going to be talking about having this season in a bubble 10 years from now and saying how much it was actually gave the players. We then hit George Floyd, a racial crisis in this country. Players used their platforms while they had some attention on them while they were playing in the bubble. We then got thrown in the middle of a political battle in Georgia. Players used their voices. So it ended up being something where the players got more exposure than they otherwise would have had we had a normal season. It's funny. So someone presenting you with this data, okay, 98% chance that it fails. I guess you maybe would have thought, all right, well, it's only 2%. If I don't do it, 100% chance we fail. So I actually got a little better shot here. <laughs> That's actually a good way to process that. I never thought of it that way, but yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine this. All of the, just the logistics, forget the stress, but just the logistics of housing. Yeah. And turning a business model, the total opposite, because usually the housing and the arena and everything's done by the teams and the league kind of just manages the, the competition. And it actually flipped totally. We had to do everything, laundry, hair. What? There were so many little details that you... And kids. You have players who need to be with their kids. We have a lot of moms, moms both in the coaching ranks. And so I think we might have been the only league to allow the kids into their bubble. And that was important to us because obviously we're a league of women and we had, I think it was 12 or 13 moms. We even have more now and we needed to allow kids in the bubble and then keep them safe, right? And they're also, you need medical assistance because they're also getting non-COVID stuff or falling and bumps and bruises that kids will have when they're young. And most of our players are very young kids. That was actually the highlight, I thought, for me to see some of these young kids just hanging out with their moms who are professional basketball players. I love seeing them in the crowd. Sometimes some of the kids will come, even the pretty little ones. And sometimes we see them with earphones on or some kind of ear protection because it gets super loud in these games. It does. We have very avid fans, so it does get loud. And we, we had a player this year, Derek Hamby for the LA Sparks, who had a baby seven weeks later, was on the court and played almost every game last this past season. She's incredible. It was her second child, too. So she's the veteran mom now. The idea of being a professional basketball player and veteran mom, it's kind of an unusual mix. All right, I have so much to get to, but we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. And I want to go into a very extraordinary, very sad, difficult thing that happened that 
thankfully was resolved in a, the best way possible. Let's talk about Brittany Griner's detention. Yeah, I'll never forget in February of 2022, I get a call from her agent saying Brittany's been detained at the airport in Moscow and obviously very upset. And it was just a few days before and it had been rumored for a couple of months that Putin was going to invade Ukraine and this whole theory that she's going to be used as a political pawn and this was all set up. And so we immediately went to work and got the right contacts in the State Department. I learned a lot about So when you take these jobs, you never know what you're going to encounter, but learned a lot about our State Department and how great they are. We have a group within the State Department called the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs and this ambassador, Roger Carstens, who does this for a living. Brittany was actually the 19th prisoner trade for the U.S. government last year in 2022. And a lot of people don't know that, that, that there's a lot of wrongfully detained Americans around the world in places like Venezuela and Russia and China and other places. So Syria is when it was set up by President Obama, this group that all they work on is these prisoner to prisoner exchanges. So it was important that we knew that the prosecution was going to find her guilty. And so we we had to get through that process and then work on whether there was a neutral party that could help broker her coming home. But we knew getting her home safely was number one. And the State Department did an amazing job in the administration support. But I'll never forget the weekly calls and the monthly updates. And then ultimately in December of 22, when I got that call that it may happen, you never know what will happen on a tarmac in Abu Dhabi. And when Brittany came home safely, we all, it was such joy. I felt like she was my daughter and she had just come home. And I told her that when I first met with her in February after she came home, but now she's dedicated her social justice platform to the Bring Bring These Families Home campaign, which is amazing because there are other wrongfully detained Americans around the world. And Brittany, having gone through it, knows how difficult it was on her and her family. And Brittany brought, because she was more well-known than most people who are wrongfully detained, she brought a spotlight on that and now has used her, her voice to help other families deal with what she went through. So again, as you said, it ended in a good place. It was incredibly challenging for the WNBA players, to her wife, to her family, but a good story ending. Although again, to being thrown in the middle of a geopolitical situation like Brittany was and the league was, was quite challenging, but was so thrilled when she got home safely. I do remember seeing you just by chance that day at the WNBA. And I mean, it was an extraordinary day and you were clearly so emotional about it. How could you not be, right? But that she had landed and she was fine and safe. It really was an extraordinary thing. She's an extraordinary human being. And she came back and played in May and played at a high level all season. The team, unfortunately, didn't make the playoffs. They're going through some rebuild there. But yeah, extraordinary situation. And she'll tell her story someday in a book, I'm sure. <laughs> Everything that happens when you go through something is incredible in the middle of this geopolitical situation in Ukraine and Russia. That was probably not on your list of what your responsibilities <laughs> entailed when you signed up for the job. So you had COVID. You had Brittany Griner's detention and thankfully release. Is there anything else that has been extraordinarily unexpected? I actually said for 2023 here, can we just have basketball this year? <laughs> so I'm knocking on wood. We're getting into the final part of our season. We'll wrap up in mid-October. But yeah, we're, we're hoping just great basketball, great players, great performances, which is what it's been all about this year. It really has been extraordinary. The quality of the players is tremendous. Not that that's changed, right? There's there's always been great players, but to have them be highlighted and to have people know who they are, but also to be at the Barclays Center when it's just rocking. And 
I love seeing some of the Nets come and some of the the Knicks come. Yeah, no, and the NBA players have been hugely supportive. And as you said at the the top, bringing in prominent athletes, Tom Brady just became an investor in the Las Vegas Aces. Dwayne Wade is becoming an investor in the Chicago Sky. We had Baron Davis, Pau Gasol, Swin Cash, a former WNBA player, invest in our capital raise. So those are important as we think about elevating the players and the support like the Knicks and Nets have for the Liberty. And you see Celtics at Connecticut Sun Games. You see Bulls at Chicago Games. You see Lakers and Clippers at, at LA Games. And the list goes on. So it's really an amazing support system, but that's because of the momentum. And as you said, people are starting to know this is the best basketball in the world for the women's game. And and again, the theater system out of the NCAA system is going to create some generational players over the next three to five years. And I just think the game just keeps getting better. Their training different, their nutrition is different, the level of play. And I didn't know this when I came in the league that the level of play has never been better. I mean, the triple doubles and double doubles, and we only play 40 minutes, not 48, which is 17% less than the men. And what the, the numbers they're putting up, rival the men. So it's, it's a great story, I think, for the quality of the game, as well as kind of marketing these players into great, great big household names. So for some of you who might not know basketball that well, a triple-double is a statistic where you have at least double digits points rebounds and assists. And it's it's a rare bird to have that. So one of the things that's most important about expansion is there are so many great players. And so if we do have more teams, then obviously there are more great players that can join. Yeah, this is a big focus of ours because there are rookies and young players and even veterans who don't make rosters every year because we only have 144 spots. So this has been a focus, like I said, 12 teams in a country of 350 million, but with the talent and basketball, and we have 6 million girls between the ages of eight and 18 playing basketball in the U.S. So really important that we're providing opportunities for development and things like that. So those are all part of our long-term plan and certainly expansion on the horizon. So one thing I've noticed, it looks like the fan base is growing and changing also. Who do you see as, you don't want to limit it, but who are the biggest, I guess, fans and attendees that are, that's driving this? Yeah, we have a really diverse fan base. We think globally we have a, over 35 million fans that identify themselves as WNBA fans. Obviously, not all of them come to the arena. We'd love them all to come to arenas, but they're fans. They're watching, they're buying our merch, they're following our players, they're putting up content around the W and supporting us in different ways. We tend to skew very diverse, more women than the men's leagues. I think we're 55% men, 45% women. So that's higher than the men's league that are 60, 40, 70, 30, et cetera. But it is changing. And we're trying to bring in a younger digital native fan, which is why we embarked on a whole digital transformation. We deployed some of our capital there, upgrading our .com, our app, because as you look at a digital native, they're watching their content in a very different way than linear TV. And they're looking for shorter form content. So there's a lot of different ways to pull in that fan. Sports bettors have become big fans of the WNBA. So sports betting has been legalized in many states now here in the U.S. And and that actually helps live sports drive fandom fantasy league. So ESPN last year launched a first ever women's basketball WNBA fantasy league, which was great. A, a great partner in ESPN on that. And that drives people interested because I know when I first was young and my five brothers were having me do fantasy football, then I started following football more. So same thing will happen with the WNBA. So there's a lot of different angles and a lot of innovation that we're looking at to bring in that younger digital native fan as we kind of advance into the next phase of our growth. 
There's one sort of fan group that I particularly love, which is fathers bringing their daughters. Yep, girl dads. Girl dads. And we all know Kobe was a huge girl dad. And it's just, it's great to see. Every year we give out a Kobe and Gigi Bryant WNBA Advocacy Award. This year it went to Pau Gasol, who was one of Kobe's best friends. He was just inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame, but also is one of our investors and is a huge advocate for the WNBA and wants to do more and more. Seven foot one, 14 year uh, veteran in the NBA, but such a great guy and really has been supportive. And such a gentle guy. I love seeing that. I love seeing that that dynamic. And I love seeing what you have done for this league. And I cannot wait to see what you do next. So I know this might be difficult for you to say, but who are the top players that you are watching this year? Yeah, not difficult for me because, uh, first of all, there's so many. But second of all, there's a few that have emerged this year. We have a really close MVP race between Asia Wilson, between Brianna Stewart and Alyssa Thomas the Liberty Aces and Connecticut Sun, who are all the top seeds. And then the Aces, like with Asia and Chelsea Gray and Kelsey Plum and Jackie Young, and then Alicia Clark, who just won sixth player of the year, plays for the Aces. Obviously, Stewie on your team has had a great, great year. You know where my vote is. John Quell Jones, Sabrina Ionescu, and Courtney Vandersloot, that super team. And then Dallas is is a sleeper here. They're in the semifinals with Enrique Ogumboale. And and we just announced Satu Sabli as the most improved player of the year who had been dealing with some injuries. But she was the second overall pick in that COVID year of 2020 draft from my living room. And then again, Connecticut Sun, they had a great year. The, The coach of the year was Stephanie White from the Connecticut Sun and Alyssa Thomas. Dewana Bonner, so many great players. Unfortunately, Minnesota just went out, but Nafisa Collier and Kayla McBride. So really just, and obviously I shouldn't leave the Mystics out with Elena Deladon and Natasha Cloud and Ariel Atkins. So, so many great players that were in the playoffs this year that there's too many to talk about. So I can't, I certainly as commissioner can't pick one. Okay. I didn't think you would, <laughs> but all right. What's a highlight from this season that just absolutely blew your mind? Well, the highlight of the year for me was we were in our third year of our in-season tournament called the Commissioner's Cup. And what happened was the Aces had the best record in their Commissioner Cup play in the first half of the season, which gave a lot of relevance. But New York was the second best. And so New York went into Las Vegas for the Commissioner Cup championship where there was a half a million dollar prize pool on the line. And New York upset the Aces in that game. So creating that like rivalry now here in the playoffs is exactly what we're trying to do. So this in-season tournament worked. I know now the NBA is going to have their first season of their uh, in-season tournament, but we've had our third season. It's nice to pilot and innovate that for others to emulate. And that was a highlight this year, having the Liberty upset the Aces in that. Yeah, I would say that was a good one. I think Sabrina's three-point show, her clinic was just Extraordinary. Yeah. And for your listeners who didn't know what happened there, Sabrina Ionescu in the three-point competition broke Steph Curry's record in three-point competition by making, I think it was 25 out of 27 three-pointers and just walked away with the trophy on that one. That was a show. So, Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is a fascinating conversation, obviously one that I love. It's really exciting to be a WNBA fan, and not just because it's playoff season, but because of how you have driven this league and just to a new level. And I am so grateful for what you've done and very grateful to have you on the podcast. And I I know your time is valuable. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for your support and really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to more growth ahead. So we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to go to our lightning round. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. You may know this best as Would You Rather, and the only challenge is you can't think about the answer. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind. All right. Got it. Okay. Would you rather watch the game at home on a big screen in sweats or be at the arena? Oh, be at the arena without a doubt. <laughs> courtside at a game or VIP at a concert? Well, I don't like to sit courtside because those are the Hollywood money seats. So I guess at a, a VIP at a concert. So I can go to a lot of games now in my new role. <laughs> okay. Would you rather wear basketball shorts and a sweatshirt or a suit? Because I do know you're a little bit of a, a clothes horse. Yeah, suit, I think, because I feel more professional. And yes, I've been wearing one for 37 years now, so a suit. Okay, well, I can tell you no one will doubt you are a professional. Would you rather watch someone drill a three-pointer or watch some great defense? Oh, definitely great defense. Assists and defense. That's what I was known for. I was a point guard, so <laughs> defense. Okay, I can see that. Excellent answer. Hot dog or nachos? Oh, nachos. Wow, that sounded not even close. Red Bull or kombucha? Uh, neither. I'm not. Red wine. Okay. <laughs> that counts. That counts. Would you rather drive or be driven? Oh, wow. I do like road trips and driving, but no, I'd love to be driven, especially it's UN General Assembly week. I'd like to be driven around the city. Right. Or watch from home. Yeah, actually, actually watch from home would be is, better. Yes. <laughs> Would you rather be moved or laugh uncontrollably? Laugh uncontrollably, I think. Fiction or nonfiction? You know, it's weird. I'm a bit of a nonfiction buff. I love nonfiction. I'm a big reader of leadership books and even just World War II, Civil War, big nonfiction buff. Okay. Favorite moment of your basketball career? Oh, winning the East Coast Conference, which was our conference, is now called the Patriot League at Lehigh University. And we finished 24-4 and under Muffet McGraw, Naismith Hall of Fame coach Muffet McGraw. Okay, clearly that, that one stood out for you. That's a good one. Okay, last one. Two-part question. What's the best investment you ever made and the worst investment you've ever made? And we use a broad definition of investment. It could be anything, something you saw or a class you took or anything. 
All right. So best investment is definitely in human capital. I always say you need financial capital to hire human capital, and that's how you grow a business. So best investment is always in people. And worst investment, I'll make this financial. I would say a few of the tech stocks during the dot-com bubble. You remember that time, Karen? Sure, I do. Definitely some very bad technology investments of those. Remember the dot-coms? Anything that had a dot-com, I was investing in, and those didn't work out too well. Yeah, I remember. All right. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, Kathy. Thank you, Karen. Have a great day. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Kathy Engelbert for sharing her journey as commissioner as she looks to transform the WNBA. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides, with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>